So if you go, okay, we've met the bare minimum standard over here and on the other side we've got this well-organised group that is going to say that means the standards aren't high enough. Welcome to episode 430 of Brews News Week, recorded on Thursday, the 3rd of August, 2023. I'm Matt Kirkegaard, Brews News Editor, and I'm joined by my good friends, Sabrina Kunz and Ian Watson, to discuss all of the beer news of the week. Welcome back to you both. How, howdy. Happy Thursday. Hey, Matt. Hey, Ian. How you guys been? When saw a 1980s uh, icon last night, ostentatious. Wow. Where was he playing? <laughs> the Barden Bowls Club. Oh, uh, well, okay, so it's, it's, he's packing out the big venues. He's packing out the big venues, yeah, and he, he mentioned that himself during it. Has he still got the biggest selling single? Yep. And not, not just comedy, single. but the biggest selling That's right, single, yep. seven-inch single. Yep, thir- 13 weeks at number one. Do you know who we're talking about, Sabrina? No, I have absolutely You've no You've never clue. heard of Australiana, you know. Um, Could you just, uh, like... Bring us up to speed for those. Oh, it was that. It was just under- bad. It was. It was. It was actually really bad puns about Australia. You know, um, uh, is Bass Strait or something? Yeah, you know, like it really. And I'm amazed. Has he changed it or like has any of it been? No, no, no. It's, it's still exactly the same, and, and it's the essentially the entire show. He tells you he's going to start the show by doing Australiana because he knows that's what everyone just wants to hear is Australiana, <laughs> and then he manages to spread Australiana out over like an hour and a half or, or whatever it was that he that he spoke for. It it was actually pretty good and he, you know, he, he um pretty good in in spreading it out that way. I I was um I was I was impressed at how he managed to to spread it out. Um yeah, it was, it was I'm funny. actually surprised. I again I, I can only remember snippets of it and it was just even sort of, you know, joking about Bass Strait. I mean it, does that even fly anymore? Like I does it has it aged or dated well? Oh. It ha- well, it hasn't. It hasn't. It is what it is. And even at that time, it was sort of, um, it, it was what it was. Uh, if I'm making sense, which I don't think I am, but it, it, it's still exactly the same. And he, you know, he made jokes and of um, which you'd expect from a comedian. But he he was like mansplaining all his jokes through it the entire way. And and that was part of the joke was he was explaining to the audience what it meant because it was from so long ago and it didn't make <laughs> okay. much sense. And it, um, yeah, the some of the audience was too young. <laughs> a little bit like this chat right now. <laughs> yeah, some yeah. Of, some which of the is, audience is I, too I, young I dr- for this. <laughs> I drank beer while I was there, so that's how it relates to beer. Great. Now, but just remember that these conversations serve to highlight and reinforce <laughs> what a diverse community we have to cater to in our industry these days, that you can't just date yourself and your marketing around the things that are relevant to you. So yeah, and, did, and was that a good how, save? And how culture moves on, right? And culture moves <laughs> on and you need to be aware of, you, you need to do a, what do they call it, an environment scan although, in everything that you do. Although maybe we can pick up on one of our, in other news, maybe culture doesn't move on and it's all a nostalgia play to our childhood. Okay, anyway. well, we can, uh, we, we, we can do that. But uh, let's talk about the news of the week. Um, Monday morning, Mighty Craft, uh, which has been hinting that it's been trying to, uh, what, get rid of surplus assets, which means selling breweries, um, announced that it is uh, sold Jetty Road or come to uh, heads of agreement with uh, Jetty Road, has a non-binding heads of agreement with somebody to sell Foghorn and Better Beer is on the auction block. No additional details of the sales were provided, though the company said it expected to return $3.5 million from its divestment program. So... Again, that was one of the more significant elements for me because, you know, 3.5 wouldn't cover their investment in Jetty Road, I would imagine, let alone Foghorn. Um, and that was their in, it's, investment program is wider than just those two breweries, but doesn't clearly include better beer. So um, actually, in something that came out yesterday on the ASX separately, they took, they updated They've renegotiated their debt funding, and it is punitive. Um, I think they're paying the equivalent of about fifteen percent um, uh, interest on their loans, and then when they pay them out, they've actually got to pay uh, more. So, Mighty Craft um, in a world of hurt. The interesting one from that is we don't know who 
the parties are that are going to buy it. But I have heard um, on very good authority that it may be former CUB um, CEO Peter Filipovic um, is leading a consortium of people to buy Jetty Road, although the potential owners of Foghorn are currently unknown. So, uh, yeah, interesting times. So, Matt, can I ask, um, and maybe you don't know the answer to this, but do you recall all the drama around the stomping ground sale that they sort of um, announced, Gage Roads announced that they were doing it because they ASX listed and so they basically said, look, we're we're letting people know that the negotiations have started. We think we're going to buy it. So that sounds a little bit like the Foghorn non-binding agreement. Is that because... In that case, Gage Roads were the buyer. Like, why is this? Why are Mighty Craft able to inform the ASX essentially once a deal is done with Jetty Road, rather than having to say we've started negotiations from a like an ongoing dis- <laughs> from an <laughs> okay. ongoing disclosure perspective? So that's where I was thinking. I was like, why are those two scenarios so different? Okay, I'm not a uh, financial securities lawyer, um, so put that disclosure out there, but as a journalist who is regularly asking questions of breweries, including publicly listed ones, um, and, you know, brew is a great example, they would disclose things that looked good um, to them. Um, You know, they would announce this pie-in-the-sky China deal to the ASX, um, or they would announce that they had basically been ranged by ALM, which is just a nothing thing. In, in, in business terms, a, a brewery having a distribution agreement through ALM is just course of business. And yet they would trumpet it by you know, the, the, announcing it to the ASX made it look substantial and meaningful. And then they would just you know make it look like it was something that was huge, um, hoping to generate some, you know, they're, they're marketing and they're, they're, they're spruiking. Um, but other times, things that you think would actually be relevant for shareholders to know, there is, you know, they just say, oh, well, we, we're not, we don't have to um, announce that. So it's, it's, it's very, very, very flexible. Yeah. Um, and in, in this case, you know, I, I think, um, you know, news has the ability to, um, in, in, impact the share market price. Um, it didn't seem to do too much for uh, Mighty Craft, which has actually gone down in the last week, hasn't it? Um, it had a little bit of a bump, four point two cents. Oh, what I struggle with is, well, what is Mighty Craft after these? Div- like, what what is left? Because it was supposed to be sort of a marketing and sales machine, and I know other people have sort of said. You know, there was the joke about whether it was an accelerator and then we, we were like, well, at least it was a portfolio of brands. And now it's sort of selling off everything. And then if it divests better beer, what is it? Well, they is do it, also have mismatch. Um, I, was, I was just going to say, so it's then got a holding in a brewery, some wineries, and it's got investment in whiskey. So it's sort of an investment arm but no longer a sales amount like I just sort of go well what's the what does the what does the overall group or business exist to do anymore like well there isn't one that's and and that's the thing that they haven't said they're talking about a strategy review but they started you know Jetty Road was the first business that they acquired even before it was founders first um and then you know, other people got involved, and you know, again, it was just a bunch of people who had backgrounds in the beer industry that thought they knew better than everybody else, um, and thought that they could buy any brewery and turn it into a national um, thing. And as you know, I'm, having spoken to the guys from Jetty Road, and I've got I've got an article that I'm in two minds about whether I write, um, but you know, they, they were pretty frank. They sort of said, you know, we we wanted to grow our business by kilometres. Um, and these guys came in and invested, and then they had this strategy of going national. And you know, what does Jetty Road mean in Darwin? Um, and they got ranged nationally, which a lot of businesses celebrate, but 
the ranging is only the very first job that you need to do. You then need to be pulled through. And if you don't, you've got a lot of beer that is just going stale on the shelves and you never get another one. Have you spoken to how are the staff doing? Because I guess, you know, they're probably all sitting there like in any of these situations wondering how it's all going to turn out and what their jobs have got. Well, the, the business to? is continuing. So, you yeah. know, the, the business is continuing. It's been sold, but it's um, continuing. So I guess that under, that's great. Um, under new management. Yeah. yeah, and whoever's buying it, when you look at that $3.5 million, which includes those two breweries and presumably others because, um, and I'm just sort of looking for it, I've seen the um, investor deck for um, Mismatch, which is Mismatch, uh, Hillsider, um, and then the distillery were the one that was bought for, I think it was $45 million, which was you know, cash... Like yeah, cash and um, share um, value, but um, I think then the last figures mismatch was one million liters or one point two million liters, which is a nothing brand. It went backwards significantly in the last quarter, so it's not even a growing brand the way the, that a Bolter was when they sold. Um, so the, and and it, so it's for sale as well. So. Um, I know that Slipstream in Brisbane is also for sale. Um, they don't have Ballistic anymore. They've sold um, Spark. So, and and they're fielding offers. Um, and everything about this announcement was it was you know designed to flush out um, offers um, for for better beer. So if they do sell that, um, I've not had any confirmation about um, the distilleries. Um, but they don't have a business. And it, it sounds very much like we're going to sell everything and then just, you know, hopefully have money that we can then just redistribute back, you know, pay out our debts and then just give investors their money back because there isn't a business um, once these are sold. They've, they've got however many thousand litres of yeah, whiskey. whiskey. Um, but as we've seen with other distilleries have gone broke, that's an asset that you can sell. That's interesting that Slipstream's, you know, for sale. Um, you know, that's not, is that disclosed? I mean, certainly remember it was from last year, disposition of non-core assets, um, and it started to look at who they were going to sell. But, you know, Slipstream's quite a, you know, here in Brisbane, as I'm sure people feel about Foghorn where it's their local you know, for a lot of people, Slipstream is their local and they're still going. You, you know what I mean? Like it's funny to um, when you think about each of the individual brands or what could be businesses or what started as businesses to see how it's sort of everything that's gone into Mighty Craft has come out less good. Um, <laughs> and I don't mean that. I'm not. I literally mean that as in you, you look at sort of what the founders intended for Jetty Road based on what you just said. You look at sort of ballistic and what happened in that sort of scenario. As I said last week, let's hope that doesn't happen for better beer. Um, let's hope if Foghorn is people's local and they want it to survive, it continues to exist. Let's hope Slipstream, you know, finds a backer who lets it continue to be what it is. It's just it doesn't seem like a great track record. What what we should point out too is when we're saying that these breweries are for sale of what I imagine is, remember that uh, for most of these ones, uh, such as Slipstream or Foghorn, they're not 100% owned by um, by Mitercraft. Mitercraft is a shareholder in them. So it's really yeah. Um, yeah. selling their shareholding, not necessarily the yeah, sale of the business true. as such, but although yeah. it may be, I don't my know. My understanding full- is that the, and again, my understanding is that Foghorn is 100% sale uh, because there's a drag-along provision in some of them. So, um, yeah. Um, so the percentage. And they're all structured a little bit differently, but the wording of the statement is that it's 100%. It's not 100% of our stake in Foghorn. It's 100% of the brewery. Um, and that's, you know, uh, I, I think there's some complexity around it. And, you know, yeah, certainly well, people... There, there could be, but th- th- those ones weren't one hundred percent owned by yeah. um, Slipstream's by, not yet. by, by Yeah, and mm. not one hundred percent owned by Mitercraft. Jetty Road, I believe, originally wasn't, but I believe uh, in the last couple of years um, did so. But yeah, I think this is pretty well the end of its pack it up time for 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 Mitercraft um, because they really do not have anything um, without that. They're really left with 
a shareholding um, in a brand that looks like they're trying to get rid of that shareholding. They're left with one other um, group brand, still at Adelaide, Adelaide Hills Group. There, there, there is nothing there, you know, which is um, it, it's a group of concept of business that changed track. I, I feel changed track several times. It come from being um, an accelerator, and which is a great idea. Uh, many people have criticised them. Look, I'm someone that's seen it from the inside because I've worked for two breweries that were associated with Mighty Craft. Um, so I'll go, I'll go on and say this: that many people have criticised it, but I th- don't think any of the cr- many of the criticisms were the criticisms that me or others from the inside had, because I think that concept is a is a viable concept. But always with any concept in any business, it's execution that that matters. And when you go from being an accelerator set up to help these businesses get their 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 way forward and it's investment for it then to then becoming changing and becoming mighty craft and being trying to become a distribution company with a a focus on the the big end of town distributing through there and a national movement that's changed and then moving into whiskey you know when it was all about craft beer or or, or spirits in in general um general whiskey holdings there were there's quite a few um track changes i feel it took focus off there but now it's it's sell down time and to me, it's not going to exist um, for much, much longer. There's a saying, and I'm, I'm, if, if it's a listener that has used this um, quote, you know, the, this uh, analogy, you, know, you, Wayne Gretzky, the famous hockey skate player, skate to where the puck is going. Sk- skate to where the puck is going. Mighty Craft has only ever skated to where the puck was. Um, and, you know, they did that with Craft Beer. They were very late to it. Um, they were talking about. Um, they were, you know, they were talking about backing the founders, but you know that they, they bought assets at the high in, into assets at very high prices. They had an incredibly heavy, you know, top-heavy management structure, structure, um, and were relying either on scaling. And I mean, just go back to listen to the chat I had with Mark Hazeman, um in what was it twenty. Uh, 20 um, after three years and he was just parroting the same things he said in the very first interview in 2018 and talking about a platform for growth um, getting scale and they never understood what scale meant in the brewing industry you can't have six seven breweries making small batch beer and get scale i'm um, certainly not to warrant you know, and, and whatever back back office synergies you can have and savings you can have were more than eaten up by the huge management structure that they had at, at the top. And it was once they came to realize that, that that was when they thought, oh, hold on, we're not going to do this. Let's, and again, this is my analysis of it. They then said, well, let's get into whiskey because spirits are having a moment. And the great thing about whiskey is we've got a five-year runway. We can tell people we're doing this now but we don't have to account for the success of the business until five years down the track when we're selling it. So that gives us some time. That's where I saw the change in strategy was purely buying them some time to uh, to come good. But meantime, they've invested so much money at the top of the market in a business that wasn't able to sustain the margins. Tim Cooper, in, in one of the other stories we're talking about, you know, said um, before Parliament this week that even at their business at 80 million litres, 80% of the costs of every beer that they make are fixed. Um, and it's a low-margin business. It's an incredibly low-margin business. And unless you get meaningful scale, you're never going to make it work. Um, and Well, so, Matt, one of the things I've been thinking about, particularly I think Minecraft is a good example and I don't want to go into the throes of sort of capitalism and Twitter and, and so on and so forth, but, um, <laughs> but the values... You kept saying they were buying at the top of the market. The values were just numbers that were made up that somebody was prepared to pay for those individual brands. And what I mean by that is, you know, when you're valuing a business, there's actual plant and equipment and intellectual property and all of the things that you can put actual dollar amounts on. And then there's the sort of... um, goodwill uh, and brand equity and then you've got to value brand equity and I and I just you look at this and you go it you know what what was Mighty Craft worth on paper what did they own on paper and that was just it it was a number that was sort of I don't want to say made up because I'm sure there was some financial modelling that sat behind it but you just look at it and go for all of that to have evaporated 
right? The zeros don't exist anymore, right? The zeros behind all the numbers don't exist. You can't have taken Jetty Road from what it was to a portion of $3.5 million, which is probably what some of the equipment is worth, right? Like it just, the zeros, the zeros have just disappeared behind the big numbers. And and that's just money they have. gone. But you do get a group think, you know, that's, the ostrich farming industry is a great example of that. The number of people who lost money, and that's why I keep comparing to some extent craft beer, because people just go, you know, it's it's growing and assuming that it's always going to grow. Um, and there are a whole lot of investment fallacies that go behind sure, that. I, all of that. Um, but and, but that was the thing. And, and But when you've got people pouring money into, and it's why I'm so hard on crowdsource funding, not because it's not a great and a legitimate way for businesses to get buy-in from their best customers, but the valuations yeah. they're doing it whilst yeah. it's being sold at an investment. If you want to get people to contribute money to your business and just collect $2 million, that's fine. But telling them that your business is worth $68 million um when it's just not um that is the problem and that has created this cascading effect that a lot of people have thought their businesses are worth a lot more and when you look at again jetty road is a is a sub- substantial business foghorn i again i think foghorn is probably the best purchase that they made but it was a business that was only ever going to be a newcastle brew pub yeah that doesn't scale you know, no. Sean Sherlock, who Ian, another, in fact, another um, brewery that or brewer that Ian's worked with, um, you know, an amazing brewer, but he didn't want to be a national player. Um, and so, what business did Mighty Craft have bringing their business model into investing in that business? But, but that's that's Matt saying that. Mighty Craft's intention for Foghorn was for it to become a national brand and, and scale across yeah. there. Sean never did that. And you could invest in a brand and um, it'd be a profitable brand and profitable business. Um, and that, that can be the that can be the investment. Um, and certainly Mighty Craft's oh, buy buy-in prices were were nothing like um, we see for for even some of the smaller crowdfunding um, ranges. Mm. They were they were they were reasonable fair. Um, I would say at, at that at that point in time, without being overly optimistic um, on them, but you know it, uh, it can, well, you can invest uh, in uh, something. Sorry, with just it. before you move on, I, I, I'm sorry. I, that, that was actually what I was saying about Foghorn. Is that it was Sean didn't want to grow it, but what business then did a craft beer accelerator have in a business that doesn't want to be accelerated? You know, they, they were buying into a business that could never grow. To give them a return on their investment. Well, it could give them um, a return on their investment, um, as in like it could be a profitable business and they're getting dividends from from that. But yes, if I see what your point, if you're if you're talking that you're wanting to grow it um, exponentially um, in, into something much bigger, um, that was then probably not the the, mm. the one to do because Foghorn's intention, for all I know, uh, was was to always be just a great brew pub, and it, it yeah. is it is one of the best brew pubs yeah. in the in the country. Uh, 100%. Um, by, yeah, right right up there. And that's what I was saying, like the, for, for the staff that work there now, for the punters that it's their local, right, that that's still their brew pub, let's hope that whatever comes from this isn't some sort of, you know, fire sale shut down. You, you know what I mean? Like we sort yep. of go, we want them, those individual previous businesses or groups or businesses to continue in the spirit of what makes them good. Right, mm. as a result of this process. But the big question, Matt, is better beer, right? Because who buys such a large stake in better beer? Uh, there's not, there's, it's unlikely there's anyone in the industry, as in the, as in CUB and, and Lion aren't buying. Well, they're not going to buy a third of something. I wouldn't have. Then, then again, they bought fifty percent of um, uh, Four Pillars Gin. So, that's who true. Knows? That's may, true. May, you know, uh, I who mean, knows? You can't imagine lines in the buying stakes given all of their recent divestments. Well, then again, they need to. They, they, they need, need to have something. something working for but, them. But I guess what I'm getting at is, in terms of where. Short from some sort of other private investment, that is a massive dollar amount, and um, the skill set that um, Mighty Craft offered as part of the ownership um, was specific, and so Better Beer as a business model now has to figure out whether the business model they re- retain with Mighty Craft 
is needs to be the same uh, and what a sale looks like, mm. right? So I, I think that's Mighty Craft is, I think Better Beer is going to be really interesting because it's not the sale, as you point out, Ian, of like of a whole business that could continue. It's the sale of one third, but then who knows what happens to all of the back contracting um, marketing sales, which is what Mighty Craft did to genuinely, according to Nick in his interviews with you, Matt, accelerate uh, Better Beer. So to me, it's the model change there that will be the most interesting. I, I think that's that's an interesting uh, question there, Sabrina, as to who would be in the position to to want to purchase it and that could be a worthwhile partner for um, Better Beer. So to me, just thinking there, the, the most likely one is so that they don't have their own facility. So if you've got someone that's actually got uh, becomes a partner in it that's got facility and has got um, the ability to distribute... That's where that's oh, where I would say it's going yeah, to go. No, I, mean, I, I don't think it would be the two big ones, no. uh, maybe, but there's certainly others that are capable of producing that much beer and have the ability to distribute that that could be in the hunt for it. I said to Matt uh, earlier in the week, I said, look, to me, the best strategic partner is obviously Brick Lane, but given that they were in court with each other not that long ago, I can't imagine that's going to happen. But in terms of who's got quality sales production um, and big distribution into the major players, um, you've got Brick Lane there. Um, Tribe and their new management are probably a little bit new. Um, but, yeah, I was... Uh, I uh, I already made that um, that point, Ian. I was like, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, well, they'd be their gauge uh, or good drinks yeah, are probably gauge. not um, not going as soon as though they've um, uh, seemed to pull back on that from from what happened yeah. at the end of last year. Well, uh, their so share maybe price is uh, in the toilet as well, so I don't know where, the, where they would get the money from because just about to say, I don't think they were looking money. for a raise around the two hundred million dollar mark. Um, valuing the whole business around about $200 million. Um, better beer or better beer. drinks? Better beer. Oh, no, be- better beer originally was, which would make yeah. Mighty Craft's third share, you know, in the 65 to $70 million, um, which, again, if you look at the the actual ASX listing price for the whole of Mighty Craft, it's around about $15.5 million. So, you know, if better beer is even worth $150 million, um, you know, those shares are massively undervalued. Um, but you know, what's better beer worth? Um, we haven't heard much um, on the capital raise, and a lot of this has been contingent on waiting to see what happens with the Mighty Craft thing. But uh, just just uh, something I haven't covered in news because it's not it's it's more spirit space. But while we're prognosticating about who might buy um, something like better beer, uh, earlier this week we got an announcement that Coca Cola that used to distribute um, some Tory. Um, a number of their products, including Beam and a few other things, had pulled out of their joint venture. Um, and today, Suntory Oceania has been launched to ignite the local ANZ multi-beverage sector. Suntory to bring together strength of non-alcohol and premium spirits to drive synergies and create jobs in Australia and New Zealand. Um, so yeah, it's the, it will create the fourth largest ANZ beverage group in Oceania. They've already built, I think, a... $400 million, there's a construction of a $400 million um, drinks pro- you know, building or processing facility in Ipswich, Queensland. They have Jim Beam, Maker's Mark Bourbon, Habiki, Japanese whiskey, Canadian club whiskey, uh, minus 196, which uh, we'll talk about probably a little bit more. Um, it's a lemon flavored, it's a hard lemon drink. We'll talk a little bit about Spirits. no doubt. Yep. Um, v Energy Drink, Maximus, uh, Suntory, Boss Cop, and many more. What they don't have is beer. But Matt, in a world in which Spirits is setting itself up as the next big thing, and again, um, you know, we talked about it last week, but the writing's on the wall everywhere. These guys are in spirits. They will be heavily invested into, I mean, I was only looking at who are the members of the National Drinks Association. The only, aside from Asahi and Lion, who have uh, a multi-beverage, Coopers is the only one that actively participates in the Drinks Association. Mm. And all of the people running it are spirits. So, um, you, you know, like I think beer is in a world of, 
reckoning coming up against yeah. the spirits we're, industry. We're, 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 we might push that. Yeah, there's a whole conversation around but, that. But uh, when I saw that announcement about um, Suntory and the size of its thing, I didn't think, oh, they're going to buy beer. I thought, oh, they're just going to lobby anti-beer because they're everything else. They're sugar, their children's products, and their RTDs and spirits. Which are and increasingly so- uh, alcohol products these days, but we'll come to that later. Um, <laughs> well, but if you have a multi-spirits thing, then and, and you can just shoehorn beer off, and better beer would be the sort of product that, you know, V, um, I don't know, anyway, I just threw it I, out I there. I think it would perfectly fit in that portfolio. It would fit oh, absolutely perfectly. somebody who there. loves beer. Don't. Nick, if you're listening... Don't let the don't let the non beer lovers take crowdfund it. Crowdfund it. Crowdfund it with a whole <laughs> lot of beer nerds. Um, <laughs> moving on. Uh, speaking of battles, a new battle over tap contracts looms. We touched last week on uh, Tim Cooper and the IBA um, gave evidence at a parliamentary inquiry into the economy, um, and one was excise. This should be indexed, given that we've just had the. Uh, in- excise index and that the rebate should be indexed and also looking at the retail's power. Um, it was so much said that I broke it, this a third story out of the same evidence and it's Dr. Tim Cooper gave some really powerful and very interesting evidence before the parliamentary inquiry in which he described the Australian marketplace as pay to play. Um, now, remember, he is the current chair of the Brewers Association that has three members. Uh, Asahi, CUB, Kieran Lyon, and Coopers. It's going to be a very interesting Christmas um, drinks that they have, I suspect. You've got to wonder how long that's going to last before there's a switch. Uh, also members of the Drinks Association, as I just sort of said, which is all, all alcohol. Um, but it'll be interesting to see whether... Um, the IBA going through a constitutional change right now and whether um, – and that's because they have a cap on their leaderage at the moment, which precludes uh, Coopers from being eligible to join the IBA, and I think that is coming up for members to consider soon. But as the largest independent slash Australian-owned, they're currently not able to be part of the IBA. Um, but it'd be interesting to see uh, where they choose to sit, which table they choose to sit at, independent brewers or uh, brewers association. Tim did talk about that, um, saying that, you know, and I specifically asked him, you know, this sounds like you have a lot of sympathy for the small independent brewers. And he said, he actually said, we do have a lot in common, but the IBA rules um, preclude Coopers from being a member. Um the, uh, you know, and I actually put to Tim, well, didn't you decline the invitation of membership back when what was the Craft Beer Industry Association? He doesn't actually have personal memory of that, so he wasn't asked. He thinks it may have been his his cousin um, who was, I think, the chair at the time. Um, but obviously it wasn't a board-level discussion or anything like that. So um, whilst the folklore is that they declined, which made it easy on the IBA, um, who, who knows? But there's certain – But again, I don't see why Coopers would resign from – they, they couldn't be in both associations, in surely. Both, surely. So, and I can't <laughs> yeah. see Coopers leaving um, just over this, although, you know, who knows? So, uh, yeah, but that was very, very interesting. So we'll wait, we'll wait and see on those three fronts. You might remember, listeners, that it was about four or five years ago, Hawkers that has really pushed um, – Muzan Hajar personally has pushed – um, very aggressively for a case on tap contracts for, for a, to, to be um, battled, um, tried to get interest in a class action and no, nothing came of it. Um, so, you know, the, the big question is the IBA, you know, a, a lot of members are interested in tap contracts and they see it as being a problem um, and you can debate that. But the IBA is a small association that is struggling to keep up with things even like the Fasans um, stuff running its conference. You know, it's, it's, it doesn't have a lot of resources because not everyone wants to join. And where is the funding going to come from to mount a significant campaign? So, Matt, it's interesting you say that. Um, I was looking today at the funding that Wine Australia, which ostensibly performs all of the function that the IBA does in terms of um, 
member support, education, resources, has extensive resources. Um, they received uh, earlier this year a, a, a sign-on by the federal government for co-matched funding. So essentially the way that Wine Australia is funded is by a levy onto its members for everything sold, uh, a mandatory levy. It is a statutory body. Um, and then they get an agreement of co-matched funding by the government. So this is money directly from the federal government to Wine Australia. It was 13 point something million dollars in the year ending uh, June 2022. So I haven't had the opportunity to yet, yet look at what in the same period was the excise raised by wine in Australia. Um, but I would just sort of say, look, maybe the federal government could throw like 5 million at beer. I mean, we don't need 13 million, but it does seem odd that an industry, um, you know, where there are health lobbyists, where in all of these other situations, small beer has got to fight on its own, self-funded entirely, whereas Wine Australia and its and its subgroups can sit at the table around Fazans, labelling and be partially funded thir- to the tune of $13 million. Imagine what the IBA could do with half of that for its mm. members. Anyway, I so $13 million goes from the federal government to wine and none of it comes to beer to help us make the good fight. But that's also the challenge. Look, I could be completely off beam around this, but wine tells a story. You know, and when I talk about the perception that a product has over and 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 over again, um, Wine has that romance, you know, particularly in South Australia. Wine bottles, you know, aren't part of the container deposit scheme because the wine industry is so powerful because, you know, they're gross. But, Matt, do they tell a good story because they've got lots of money to tell the story or do they tell a good story because their story is better? Because I think I I really, I have no doubt it's chicken and egg. Exactly. It's It's circular, right? Because I sit there and go... You look at um, some of the funding, even in tourism, Australia has recently released a whole host of work that they've done and they talk about food and drinks. Again, the heading is wine. They are investing federal government money into imagery, photos, everything to Mm -hmm. support wine off the back of lobbying done by wine that is co-funded by government. And so it goes round and round in circles. So for beer and individual breweries to tell a story at the same level of a body that is that well-funded it's just not feasible. And and I think that, that there are plenty of breweries and, and in other news we've got uh, what Rocky Ridge has done this week in terms of single origin, regeneratively grown um, malt, certified sustainable. That is a fabulous story of something that has really happened, that is working our land in Australia, that is as significant agriculturally as some of the stuff that small vineyards do, and yet they are not funded there is no body sitting over the top of them to help them ship that story, to tell it uh, nationally, to tell it as part of an export story. And and it's it's a fabulous story. So we are not but telling this is it. where, and again, yeah. this will come back a little bit to the solo and Look at me getting story. feisty about it. I yeah, just, but, yeah, but the industry, I mean, again, the brewing industry has never told a cohesive romantic story about itself at any level, you know, and it's even craft beer, which offered a great opportunity. We talked about it, that what it was going to be about. It was going to be about ingredients and romance and things like that. It has become about who can create the silliest named beer or have the wackiest ingredients and beer concept. Um, that's not something that resonates with, you know, the, the, the story of 600 small local employers isn't being told widely enough. And it's certainly not the story that's often told. Um, and that would be the first story you tell. Local brewers should know their local politician and be constantly telling that story and lobbying them. Anyway, it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's a much bigger story than we can solve on the podcast. But it is. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, a case, a competition case about tap contracts requires a lot of uh, resources. Um, yeah. Something that doesn't... That's, that's how we got That's there. where we got bundled, yeah. See, I'm a professional. I'll bring it back. <laughs> Do you know something else that takes a lot of resources? Labels, stickers and packaging. 
Exactly. <laughs> but not if you have friends in the industry, and we do. Our friends are the team at Rallings Label Stickers and Packaging, and they're really looking forward to catching up with everyone at this year's BrewCon on the Gold Coast after such a long absence. As you know, they can supply cans, bottles, labels, shrink sleeves for cans, supplied to you ready to fill, cartons either printed or plain, tap decals, coasters and four-pack barcodes, and much, much, much more. Ben, they're also great to deal with. They are your one-stop shop for all your brewing, labelling and packaging needs. Give Paul, Brad and the team a call on 1300 852 235 to discuss your options or email sales at rallyingsprint.com.au. Well, we move on to other news. I think we've... Uh, it, now, if anyone's wondering, we lost Ian. Ian's... Uh, uh, he's texting me. His computer crashed, and he's trying to get back in. But uh, <laughs> no, oh, so he's out. Bye, um, Ian. Chat to you next bye, week. Bye, Ian. So, mind you, I thought he might have hung up in disgust because we don't let him get a word in edgewise anyway. Um, but it's actually crashed. So, um, look. I, I, in, in other news, I had a great conversation with Liam Pereira, who's now at the White Bay Beer Company. Um, not sure. Have you had a chance to listen I to that one yet, Sabrina? I haven't. You haven't? Uh, Really, really good chat. Uh, again, like I, I, I indulge myself with those conversations, and Liam's been somebody that I've long wanted to speak to, and it was interesting to see that he'd moved recently to White Bay, but he has been in the industry, you know, uh, almost as long as I've been covering it. Um, you know, he was pouring beers. Uh, <laughs> tells a funny story about the first pub job he had. He was in London where he was hoping to make it as a rock star um, and got a job at a pub, um, and... It, it had car scales and he pulled the handle on the pump once just waiting for the beer to come out because he he didn't know that pumping a beer actually meant, meant pumping, pumping a beer. A beer. Um, and now he's one of the, you know, I would sort of say he's one of the great beer educators, you know, beer culture um, uh, brewery people in, in the country. And so he's had a great career and we talk a lot about the uh, evolution of beer and what it means. So, uh, yeah, go have a listen to that one. Looking forward to it. I, I usually try to get to them before Thursday, but I just, uh, I was I was working through my pod rotation and I didn't get to it, Matt. No, no, but it was a, it was a good one. Um, if I do say so myself, but again, it's the guest. <laughs> it's the guest, not me, uh, that, that, that makes it good. So uh, hopefully I can... Um, get away with that without sounding immodest. Um, but another one, a really interesting one for me was, um, it, now it's a commercial podcast that we did, but it's it was speaking to Gabriela Montando. Um, I've <laughs> been working on that. Um, it said, it just sounds incredibly wanky to me when I say it like that, but that's how she says it. So, um, and it's, that's how it's pronounced. Um, but it's fascinating. I've had two chances to go to Fermentus's um, campus in Lille in the north of France, uh, just near the Belgian border, and see what they have done in their research. And, you know, on one hand, these sorts of conversations can be very salesy, and I really didn't want to do that. And I had a great chat with Gabriella, who is a really passionate sensory expert with a um, PhD in microbiology. And so she knows yeast. She knows its sensory impact on beer. But she's also very passionate. So it, it it was a great chat. You know, she she called me out a couple of times because I described yeast as being simple, and she said I have to con- I have to correct you. We want yeast to be simple, but it's actually incredibly complicated. And talks about it. And it's it was a way of looking at yeast a whole different way, um, and how a Kolsch yeast in 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 this case the K ninety seven Kolsch yeast they've found that it biotransforms a whole lot of what would otherwise be hidden compounds in hops. So it's a great beer for some uh, hop-forward beers. And uh, again, yeah, it's a, it's a commercial podcast, but very, very interesting. I just always think, Matt, like I always think, you know, like I know this narrow part of the beer industry. I sort of sort of have this broad overview of the beer industry. And so many aspects of it uh, you, you know, you always talk about look at the world through a beer glass, but so many aspects of it. You had that great chat recently with Kelsey Pickard from Science Made Beerable and how every sort of single aspect about the beer industry when you drill down in it is so uh, complex and interesting in and of itself. Um, and these chats with like this one um, are always you know, bring you back to just how much there is to know just in the brewing industry itself. So um, love it. This might lead into uh, a, 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 something else we want to discuss, but 
one of the great descriptions I've had heard for beer um, and that I keep coming back to is that beer is fractally interesting. You know, the more you dig in, the more you mm. see yep. it's worth you know, you know, these yep. repeating patterns of interest. And that actually was something I think Phil Cook, um, the beer writer who used to be the beer diary writer said, either he, I read it, him quoting somebody else, or he coined it. But he had a very interesting um, post this week about, and it's at philcook.net forward slash beer diary. He's not very prolific anymore, but he was one of the early um, interesting bloggers, and he had a very interesting take on Epic um, and some thoughts on why he felt Epic had failed. Um, I don't think we need to go into it too much, but certainly um, we we might share it in the Radio Brews News Facebook group. um, Yeah, I think it was... It's worth a discussion. Yeah, I just think it was an interesting, you know, there's been so much outpouring of support for Epic and um, I thought, A, it was quite brave of Phil to make his comments quite so public because some of them address some um, concerns in the behaviour of the founder, which is not something, um, as, as folks in this industry know, you know, there's not a lot of sort of calling out publicly for bad behaviour. So I thought it was quite brave of Phil to do it in this. Um, but that was only sort of touched on as one of the reasons that Epic might have failed. And I just thought it was really interesting. Phil's not in the industry, so to speak, but as as you say, Matt, been a long-time observer, and I think it was a piece well worth reading for folks to sort of, um, if they're really trying to take some lessons learned from um, from sort of what's happened around Epic, uh, to have a read of that piece too. The other one that sparked, well, I don't know whether it sparked debate or I just... Um... It's part debate up. for you. <laughs> um, the hard solo launch because there was a there was a bit of a chat um, in the Radio Brews News Facebook group, and we I, I don't know why some weeks we just have a huge swarm of people wanting to come in. Um, so if you do want to join the Facebook group, at least show you're a, a, a listener because we don't there, there are plenty of Facebook groups around, and we're not doing this just to have the biggest one. We want people who work in the industry or at least podcast listeners that we can have this, um, you know clubhouse to just continue discussions or get feedback so soapbox is the way you let us know that um, you're a listener so if you don't know um solo brand has launched hard solo that's the headline but even before that andre san martino um posted Kristen bell says her kids like non-alcoholic beer and that the pose a question is it legal for under 18s to buy alcohol-free beer? And the, the simple answer is yes. Um, yes, it is legal because it's just like soft drink because it doesn't have alcohol and it's not regulated the way that alcohol is. Can I just ask, so in New Zealand, supermarkets that sold it made the decision that they wouldn't sell it? But they made the decision. It's not yeah. mandatory. That's and right. it's Again, yeah. it's corporate social responsibility. That's right. And making a proactive choice uh, you know, presumably to avoid criticism um, for them. And it is widely criticised um, anyway. Um, and it's, you know, the, the accusation that they're grooming the next generation of uh, drinkers and, you know, um, getting them in. Um, in the same way that those old fads, cigarette, you know, yep. candies, yep. groomed smokers, got them, got, got them used to it. You, I, I don't even want to discuss whether they do or they don't the accusation is enough. Um, and if if it's a convincing enough accusation, it can be. And as part of that discussion, um, we were talking about it and I just made the point, um, and I can't even remember how the point um, came about, but amongst all of the discussion, I said, mind you, perception, uh, there is a significant policy and perception issue with selling alcohol-free beer to children, given the suggestion by some groups it's grooming. Um, mind you, the perception seems to be troubling big brewers less and less these days. And because um, Solo, the you know thirst-crushing soft drink, now has an, a hard Solo version um, that looks identical. Um, and there's been a whole lot of discussions around, well, this is a black container, not a yellow container. They've just reversed it out. And it's got um, alcoholic lemon on, on the thing. All of that is mounting the ABAC defense. Um, you know, ABAC goes into minutia for how you determine whether something can be confused by children or has an evident appeal to children. So that's ABAC. 
but the point, the, the broader point is what those who are currently attacking alcohol are going to say about it because they have the ear of government and they're a very persuasive voice. And, you know, so there was a, there, there was a very interesting chat between myself and Richard Adamson from, um, from Young Henry's about it. And they kept wanting, and it, um, Richard kept wanting to say that this was an adult, it was marketed as an adult soft drink and things like that. But then my point was there's a couple of, TikTok videos and there's a couple of articles um, in things like Man of Many referring to it as being, do you remember the drink you drank as a kid? Now you can essentially getting shit faced on it as a young adult. And so, you know, you can point to the solo man, the mustachioed solo man of commercials of the 1970s. But the point is, the cultural acceptance is that soft drink is consumed by young people and that this is an alcoholic version and it's purely just there to get your shit faced. And uh, if you look at all the TikTokers and the way that the media is reporting and some aspects of the media reporting on this, they're basically waving a red flag at the health lobby um, and the anti-alcohol lobby to use this as an argument for the alcohol industry isn't responsible. And it's a very, I have no view either way, but it is a very persuasive argument that can be made to politicians. And ultimately, they're the ones who are going to determine. Um, and, you know, I, I, I found a very old um, article I wrote about the 26-page definition of a biscuit and, you know, how trying to push boundaries with legislation just creates more legislation and more red tape it doesn't give you an advantage and this is exactly the way you know craft brewers have a beer have a product that can be portrayed as a very socially responsible drink it's bitter it doesn't appeal to miners for a whole range of reasons um, and it's a defensible product that's very easily defensible alcoholic fizzy drinks as we've seen, RTDs have been carpet bombed in the past by politicians. At the moment, all alcohol is on. So, yeah, again, I've got no view about solo, but at a time that just alcohol-free versions of beer are coming under the sustained attack in some quarters, to have something that is a soft drink that is available to children that has an alcoholic version that creates an equivalence that the industry just does not even need to fight at the moment. Um, so why would you go there? I don't disagree with the long-term logic there, Matt, that says why when we know, and I'll give listeners an example. So, um, and Matt and I have talked about this in the office this week, but essentially, um, as you will have heard us on the podcast talk about in Scotland, um, there is a push for labelling uh, essentially um, cigarette style warning labels uh, on beer and uh, no uh, labelling and marketing and advertising kind of anywhere. So, so a, mm. a pretty hard line push by Scotland Health. And when That's I was, it's not this isn't me making up scary scenarios. Yeah. This is a real scenario where Scotland is actually debating that you can't display outdoor ad advertising for alcohol. Yeah. You can't, um, and even packaging restrictions and a whole range of things. So so my, the next thing on that, when we say that's really far away and that's happening in Scotland, the Scottish Health Authority, and I would have to look up the precise wording of who made the submission, submitted to the Food Standards Australia labelling consultation process around energy and carb labelling. Mm. So the health authority in Scotland who has a vested interest in what's happening in the Scottish uh, legislation, uh, Scottish framework around advertising and marketing of alcohol has started um, coming in alongside its Australian counterparts to make the same arguments in government consultation in Australia. So let's just say it's a long bow. It's not a long bow. It's not a long bow. And to, to, to make it really clear, the brewing industry can't even agree on the topic. And yet the, the anti-alcohol lobbies globally are all mutually supporting each other on consistent messages about 
legislating against alcohol. They're very, they're majoritively supportive based on some of the stuff. But so, so the reason we say that's a long bow. So then I think if we take that piece, the flag that you're trying to wave here, Matt, is I think is um, why wave a flag at all of the anti-health people who, again, are well-funded, predominantly through government, well-organised, working together to be against any alcohol. Um, And so, you know, I would be surprised in the case of this solo one that it wasn't pre-approved by ABAC. ABAC would have... So it doesn't breach ABAC. I'm willing to say that ABAC won't find against it, but that's not the point. That's not my argument. I agree. I'm just making the point that says that... um, So the frameworks that we've got... um, that, again, ABAC being self-regulating, I'm confident that they would have gone through the process of pre-approval. So they can step back, they, the company, can step back and say, we've done all of the things that are legislatively and even quasi-legislatively required of us. So they've met the bare minimum standard yep. in bringing this product to market. So so if you go, okay, we've met the bare minimum standard over here and on the other side we've got this well-organised group that is going to say that means the standards aren't high enough. Exactly. They're already attacking ABAC. And if ABAC says that this is fine, they're going to go, well, that's the problem. ABAC says this is fine. Because alcohol (laughs) is self-regulated. So, so, and again, I think that the challenge for us as a collective is that there is so much good stuff still going on in our industry. There are so many small breweries that are supporting you know, providing community hubs, supporting local, um, doing great things like investing in sustainability, really pushing the boundaries of what that is. And the shit that is going to undermine us is... Is hard solo that has no redeeming cultural, it's not sophisticated, it is just a drink designed. Is going to be things done in a tough economic space by actors looking to ensure ongoing economic viability they just want to flog units is, is the way he tries to say anyway. Yeah, I'm saying what, what happens if we all become the lowest common denominator in a time of strain? Well, legislation targets the lowest common denominator but affects everybody equally. So that's, yeah. Look, I'm just very conscious of the time. Um, and But before we do go, we can't go without thanking our Brewery of the Week. And in thanking our Brewery of the Week, we need to thank the sponsor of the Brewery of the Week, which is Bluestone Yeast. And our good friends at Bluestone Yeast can supply pitches of yeast from 1 litre to 100 litres at greater than 2 billion cells per milliliter. Whether you are after a one-off pitch or you're looking for weekly, fortnightly or monthly deliveries of yeast, Bluestone Yeast has you covered. You can reach out to them at info at bluestoneyeast.com.au or call Derek on 03 8518 3172 and talk all things yeast. And this week, I'm actually glad that Ian's not here. We've been trying to stay away from our backyard here in Queensland for a while, but uh, I was fortunate to go to um, Happy Valley, um, which is one of my very close breweries, um, recently for a presentation that Ian gave. And they're not his beers, but he's currently the brewer there. Um, but they were a bunch of their um, aged beers. And it was one of the things that you just love about small breweries and being part of the community. They had people in from all around the area that were obviously regulars that had come in to support their local brewery. And um, it was just such a lovely, lovely night. It was, you know, good people. The owners were there. Um, the, the owners presented, um, and it was just, you know, <laughs> they like a lot of breweries as an industrial space. It doesn't have a kitchen. So what they did, there was a, a kitchen, a little cafe that came up across the road, and so they leased that. So with eighty people in the bar tasting these beers they were ferrying the meals across the road so fortunately it was a quiet night on the streets um, because they had waiters shuffling across the street so um but it was just a lot like the beers were great um the the food um it was just a really really nice community night so uh, happy valley um and actually we spoke to shane who was who was the owner on the podcast um at the start of the year after yeah he and his business partner had gone their separate ways we talked a little bit about that so go have a listen to uh, Shane at Happy Valley and you'll find out a little bit more about the brewery cool anything else from you Sabrina no 
um, we're gearing up for Indies. Uh, Indies judging is on in Brisbane in a couple of weeks' time and then uh, on the Gold Coast to see, hopefully, as many people as possible in the Australian and New Zealand and further afield brewing industries. And if you are in Brisbane, I've got the Echo coming up from the 12th, so one of my favourite times of the year. So if anyone wants to swing by and ha- uh, have a beer with me, um, swing by the Echo, the Woolworths Pavilion. Come and see me. We've got uh, six or seven great breweries and a really great range of beers, so you can join us there. Um, cool. So on that note, that wraps up another week of news and views. Your hosts have been me, Matt Kirkegaard, Sabrina Kudens, and for at least part of it, Ian Watson, and I'm sure he's here in spirit Anyway, uh, the show is produced and edited by Joe Helder. We thank Rallings Label Stickers and Packaging very much for their support, as we do Bluestone Yeast, who make this episode possible. Uh, I'll be back next week. I'm going to be talking to James Phillips uh, on the podcast uh, about some data, hopefully not squishy data, in the brewing industry uh, that's based on a presentation he gave recently at the Pub Leaders Summit. And we'll be back next week talking all about the news as well. We thank you for listening. And don't forget to leave us a review in iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform. We'll see you next week.